Amazing grace shall always be my song of praise. For it was grace that brought me liberty. I do not know just why he came to love me so. He looked beyond my fault and saw my need. I shall forever lift mine eyes to Calvary to What grace is mine that he who dwells in endless light called through the night to find my distant soul and from his scars poured mercy that would plead for me that I might live and in his name be known. So I will go wherever he is calling me. I lose my life to find my life in him. I give my I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow him. What grace is mine to know his breath alive in me. Beneath his wings my wakened soul may soar. All fear can flee, for death's dark night is overcome. My Savior lives and reigns forevermore. So I will go wherever he is calling me. I lose my life to find my life in him. I give my all to gain the hope that never dies. I bow my heart, take up my cross, and follow
Good morning, everyone. Uh, For our responsive reading this morning, we will read um, from Psalm 43. If you would stand, it's real short, so you won't be standing very long. Psalm 43, again, I'll begin in congregation, the even number verses. We'll conclude one through five. Yeah, oh, well, the whole thing, we're going to do the whole thing today. We'll break it up. All right, Psalm 43. Vindicate me, O God, and plead my case against an ungodly nation. O deliver me from the deceitful and unjust man. For you are the God of my strength. Why have you rejected me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? O send out your light and your truth. Let them lead me. Let them bring me to your holy hill and to your dwelling places. Then I will go to the altar of God, to God my exceeding joy, and upon the fire I shall pray to you, O God, my God. Why are you in despair, O my soul, and why are you disturbed within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him the help of my countenance and my God. Amen. Please be seated. Well, you can certainly see that this is a a short psalm, that it is one in which the writer of this psalm seems to be distant from God and is in turmoil with his enemies about him, where he is... um, and he asked for uh, to be vindicated, to be delivered, to be set, uh, to be able to stand against his enemies, to deliver them from the deceitful and unjust man. We certainly see that everywhere in the world these days, where we all, we could easily say, "Deliver us from this uh, this world," because it just seems to be so much around us. But then, it, your light and your truth had come to me, and to bring me to your holy hill but to be delivered into the presence of God. And that's the one thing that an author of, of uh, Psalms was looking for. So often uh, we talk of the hope. They had this hope of being there one day, but we have that. And it's all because of what God has done for us through his son, Jesus Christ. That, we, as the author says here, then I will go to the altar of God. And at the altar, we would perform a sacrifice, or they would perform a sacrifice and give up something to God. But as we come to him, that offering that we give up is that living sacrifice, as as we would read in the scriptures, where we would submit ourselves uh, uh, to to God and to deliver ourselves for him. And And in doing so, we can praise him, as it says here, praise you, O God, my God. And it says, why are, my, why are you in despair, O my soul? And why are you disturbed within me? Why? Because we have a God who has rescued us, who has brought us out of, del- out of this uh, calamity. Whatever situation we find ourselves, day by day we find ourselves in different things, no matter which way we go. But God delivers us. He has delivered us. And our hope in God uh, is for sh- uh, shall praise him, and that's what we can do. We praise him and we thank him and we rejoice. Well, my message this morning has a strange title. If you've seen it in the bulletin, it's Who Wants to Be Wrong? 
Anybody want to be wrong? No, I don't think so. All right. What I'd like to do is start off reading a short excerpt about St. Patrick from the Book of Common Prayer that I follow. Patrick of Ireland from 389 to 461. At the age of 16, Patrick was kidnapped from his home by Irish invaders and taken to Ireland, where he was sold as a slave to the chief and forced to herd livestock. After six years of slavery, Patrick escaped to his native Britain. Because he believed that his captivity and deliverance were ordained by God, Patrick devoted his life to ministry. While studying for the priesthood, he experienced, he experienced reoccurring dreams in which he heard voices telling him, the voice of God, telling him to return to Ireland. He convinced his superiors to let him return to Ireland in 432, not to seek revenge for injustice, but to seek reconciliation and to spread his faith. Over the next 30 years, Patrick established churches and monastic communities across Ireland. When he was not engaged in the work of spreading the Christian faith, Patrick spent his time in prayer, praying in favorite places of solitude and retreat. So I read you all of that to say, how many people thought, and you don't have to raise your hand, that Patrick was Irish? Okay, hey, there you go. There's a couple of us. That's all right. It's fair. I'm one of those people. So uh, that was a shock to me to realize that Patrick was from Britain and he was a missionary to Ireland. Uh, definitely interesting detail there. Um, let's face it. Who wants to be wrong about something? Nobody. No one. Worse yet, who wants to admit when they're wrong? Very few. So a few points I'd like to highlight this morning in a St. Patrick's Day sermon would be talking about being wrong and this strange phrase called cognitive dissonance, which I'll explain here in a moment, and the glory of admitting that we are wrong. There's actually glory in it, and I'm going to impress that upon us this morning. Also, I'm going to talk a little bit about our thinking through Scripture, the atonement that we talked about last week, and maybe add some corrections. I will be adding some corrections. And uh, also I'll be talking about St. Patrick's Prayer and what that has to do with us. You can notice that prayer is on the back of your bulletin, but don't let that distract you now because we're going to go through that at the closing of the sermon. So earlier this week in a devotional that I was reading, as I mentioned earlier in the announcements, uh, Daily Reflections for Highly Effective People, which is a devotional rendition of Stephen Covey's book, uh, The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People a book that I actually very much adore. So uh, in this Reflections, this is what was said earlier this week. It is extremely valuable to train the mind to stand apart and to examine its own paradigm. That is the definition of a well-supplied education, the ability to examine the programs of life against larger questions and purposes of other paradigms. Training without such education narrows and closes the mind so that the assumptions underlying the training are never examined. That's why it's so valuable to read broadly and to expose yourself to great minds. Here at the Blue Point Bible Church, we talk about and celebrate this as a, a thinking faith that we love to talk about, we love to challenge our thoughts, we love to challenge our paradigms and come to solid, you know, reasonable uh, answers to the things that we're searching or studying or whatever it might be. Um, that we like to have a faith that is well thought about. That quote immediately reminded me of another quote by Bible teacher Del Tackett, who in The Truth Project, he challenged Bible students, how do you know that what you believe is true is really true? In our being human, 
honest examination of paradigms at some point in time will lead to revelation of error. Something we may have previously thought that we realized we may have been wrong about. Um, You know, maybe we didn't think about something and we were wrong in that we didn't think about it. I would say that was my life with not thinking about God. Um, I understand my paradigm before. Thank God that he led me to a point where I challenged the paradigm I was living under and thus was able to come to the truth of God, come to him. Um, However, it's been said that humans are psychologically inclined to believe they're correct even if all of the observable evidence points to the contrary. A New York Times editor said that we as a nation are suffering from the epidemic of infallibility, believing that we can never be wrong. Psychologists and sociologists have said or have referred to this as cognitive dissonance, which is defined as a state of tension that occurs whenever a person holds two cognitions, meaning ideas, attitudes, beliefs, or opinions. So when you hold two different ideas, attitudes, beliefs, or opinions that are inconsistent with one another, what you undergo is this psychological phenomenon called cognitive dissonance, where you experience a tension in your mind. Alexander Pope famously wrote, To err is human, to forgive is di- to forgive divine. But consider this modern rendition. To err is human, to admit divine. I believe that in our seeking, searching, studying, and proving the things of God, and simply living life, we will be provided with ample opportunity for us to see the beauty, to see the divine, in realizing we are wrong, and going about the effort of making it right. I'm sure I'm preaching to the choir, or preaching to many of us that already have seen this beauty in our lives, of realizing we have been wrong, and if you have not, God bless all of you. Um, if you know, realizing that we are wrong, and obviously seeing the beauty of going about rectifying our errors. Therefore, I am reiterating something we already know to encourage us to continue down the path of intellectual honesty, constantly examining our paradigms, taking note of our errors in judgment or belief, and admitting our wrongs, and when possible, making them right. We should despise the mentality of, quote, digging in our heels, right? That you dig in and you, this is where I'm going to stand no matter what. We should despise that mentality when we become so stubborn to the extent that we can never be wrong no matter what. Unfortunately, what ends up happening is this leads one to become worse by covering up their error, making excuses and or distorting the truth, going from bad to worse. Why am I telling you all of this? Well, I want to take you back to last Sunday and our sermon on Leviticus chapters 15 through 16, I believe it was, wherein I detailed atonement. In 2014, I debated Bruce Bennett, the pastor of the Word of Truth Church. In that debate, which can be viewed on YouTube, Bruce challenged me on atonement and charged me with denying substitutionary atonement, one of the various theories on atonement. Much of what I mentioned last week was seeking to respond to that issue of what Bruce Bennett had said in regards to my coming to understand the second coming of Christ to bring salvation in accordance with Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28. However, Pastor Steve Schilling has shared quite a bit with us about atonement and propitiation. A while back, him and I both presented a sermon together where he shared in various, and he's also shared in various studies um, where Christ removed the need for atonement by his propitiating work. And last week, he offered a response to my sermon in personal conversation 
by expressing difficulty following my marking out Christ's going into the most holy place two times. I had said that Christ went into the most holy place the first time at his resurrection. Right? I had understood that his death, burial, and resurrection to be that first going in to the holy place. And then him coming out and him presenting himself to the saints and then going in in his ascension to the most holy place, into heaven itself, and then coming again in AD 70 to bring atonement, to bring salvation. I was right about the second part. A good preterist, I've studied out the, the, the eschatology aspect. So Christ did return a second time in AD 70 to bring salvation, as the scriptures clearly remark. But what I would like to do is share some details today. As I, After seeking some wisdom from a few trusted teachers, including Pastor Steve, I was directed to Hebrews chapters 4 through 5. And I want to take us there here. Uh, we're going to begin at Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. And if you're following along in a pew Bible, that's going to be page 1,198. 1198. And what my goal in reading this is I, I believe I'm going to explain why I had come to my conclusion and I'm also going to explain the clarifying thing that I realized this week. Starting at verse 14. Therefore... Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Continuing into chapter 5. For every high priest taken from among men is appointed on behalf of men in things pertaining to God, in order to offer both gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and misguided, since he himself is also beset with weakness. And because of it, he is obligated to offer sacrifices for sins, as for the people, so also for himself. And no one takes honor to himself, but receives it when he is called by God, even as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself so as to become a high priest. But he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Just as he also says in another passage, you are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Christ offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all of those who obey him the source of eternal salvation, being designated by God a high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. So a couple of things I want to point out. In chapter 4, verse 14, it does say Jesus, our great high priest. So in my understanding, Jesus is following after the pattern of the high priest. However, what was interesting and what I marked out was the word great. And I'm going to show you something about that here in a moment. So Jesus is our great high priest. And as you follow through the reading into chapter 5, it's creating a distinction between the priesthood that Aaron served in, which was the Levitical priesthood, where men would, yes, have to offer up a sacrifice for themselves because they were full of sin 
and then would offer up sacrifice on behalf of the people. It's creating a comparison. The comparison would be Jesus is not of the Levitical priesthood. Jesus is a priest not because he went through and he was chosen by men and you know ordained as a priest. He was chosen by God and a pronunciation was made over him. You are my son. So Jesus is a he's a priest by pronunciation, by God declaring him a priest in the order of not the Levitical priesthood, which is required to do this two-step process, but Jesus without sin is a priest in the order of Melchizedek. And if you're familiar with the story of Melchizedek in the Old Testament, you know that he was one who had no beginning and no end. Again, you might say that was a type of Jesus Christ right there early on in Genesis with Abraham. So we see in verse 5, chapter 5, verse 5, thou art a son. And I'm making the case that this is a pronunciation, making a differentiation between how Aaron was declared a priest in the Levitical priesthood and how Jesus was declared a priest in the Melchizedek priesthood. In verse 6, it tells us he was a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then, of course, in verse 8, which was a clarifying text for me, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. You see, Christ, unlike the Levitical priest who would be filled with sin and would suffer things because of his own sins, Christ suffers things because it taught him obedience. It demonstrated obedience through Jesus Christ, who we follow. Again, Jesus being our example. It was showing obedience through his life so that we would be able to follow after that obedience. Again, our obedience doesn't come by us seeking to be obedient or making ourselves obedient. It comes by pronunciation of God making us righteous, just as he did with his son. He pronounced him a son. So where I was wrong is revealed in verses 1 through 6 of chapter 5. Jesus was a different type of priest. Actually, the word great in chapter 4, verse 14, is translated from the word meaning things esteemed highly for their importance, of great moment, of great weight, a thing to be highly esteemed for its excellence, not like Aaron. You see, there's a distinction here. There's the priesthood under Aaron, and there's the priesthood that was being offered through Jesus Christ. Jesus did not need to enter into the temple the first time to offer sacrifice on behalf of his own sin. Because again, right here in the text, it says he had no sin. So to make the case, as I last week wanted to, paint this beautiful type and anti-type of how Jesus Christ was fulfilling the Levitical priesthood, when I turned to this text, I realized... I was wrong. Jesus is not under, he's not even typifying the Levitical order. He's showing a whole different version of a priesthood that comes directly from God. A mysterious priesthood at that, because again, I would encourage you to do a word study on Melchizedek. You find it maybe five times mentioned in the entire Bible. I believe that's of importance. It's showing that Jesus Christ is of a different priesthood. He's not of the priesthood under the Levitical order where man would go in and offer a sacrifice on his own behalf and then would... Um, would then go in on behalf of the people. So, yeah, that's my admitting I was wrong. And uh, just helping clarify that Jesus did not need to go in the first time. I was correct about the second time. Jesus Christ did need to ascend into the most holy place to go into the very presence of God to come out and declare salvation to the people, as Hebrews chapter 9, verse 28 highlights. But again, to say that Jesus Christ needed to offer in the first time, that's an erroneous understanding and could actually become blasphemous if we were to follow that train of thought. So uh, glad I was able to clarify that. The debates regarding atonement continue in various communities of Christians. 
Even in preterist circles, we have our differences regarding atonement. A more popular and recent debate has been highlighted on social media with Dr. Don K. Preston and Mr. Ed Stevens. We can only hope that instead of cognitive dissonance on both of their sides, we can see these conversations move on to maturity and produce the necessary details and give liberty and freedom of thought and conscience in less clear matters. I believe that is what C.S. Lewis was trying to assert in the quote that I had presented last week. Please allow me to remind you of that quote from C.S. Lewis, renowned author and apologist regarding atonement. We are told that Christ was killed for us, that his death has washed away our sins, and that by, and that by dying, he disabled death itself. That is the formula. That is Christianity. That is what has to be believed. Any theories we build up as to how Christ's death did this, in my view, C.S. Lewis, are quite secondary. Mere plans or diagrams that need to be left alone if they do not help us. And even if they do help us, they should not be confused with the very thing itself, meaning Christ's full atonement. I believe it is in that it is in that we, the church, can find unity and thus move on to maturity. Taking note of what Christ had accomplished, not all the different aspects of the theories of how that applies and how it works, but instead knowing what Christ accomplished and making that of utmost importance. Increasing and possessing in all that we are called to because of Christ's work in and through us. His life proclaimed and lived through us. That is what propels us into mission, our being the healing of the nations. In my estimation, it is talking about this that does justice and brings glory to the message and example of St. Patrick. Consider the prayer that has been attributed to him, the prayer called St. Patrick's Breastplate or the, or the Lorica of St. Patrick. What I'd like to do is have us read through that in an examinatory way and see what it challenges us with. And then I will conclude my points this morning. And if you'd like to turn over your bulletin, you, can, you don't have to read out loud with me, but you can read the words, of course, with me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in threeness, through confession of oneness of the creator of creation. I arise today through the strength of Christ's birth and baptism, through the strength of his crucifixion and his burial, through the strength of his resurrection and his ascension, through the strength, through the strength of his descent for the judgment of doom. I arise today through the strength of the love of cherubim, in the obedience of angels, in the service of archangels, in the hope of resurrection to meet with reward, in the prayers of the patriarchs, in the preaching of the apostles, in the faith of confessors, in innocence of virgins, in deeds of righteous men. I arise today through the strength of heaven, light of the sun, splendor of fire, speed of light, swiftness of the wind, depth of the sea, stability of the earth, firmness of the rock. I arise today through God's strength to pilot me, God's might to uphold me, God's wisdom to guide me, God's eye to look before me, God's ear to hear me, God's word to speak for me, God's hand to guide me, to guard me, God's way to lie before me, God's shield to protect me, God's host to save me, 
from snares of the devil, from temptations of vices, from everyone who desires me ill, afar and near, alone or in a multitude. I summon today all these powers between me and evil, against every cruel, merciless power that opposes my body and soul, against incantations of false prophets, against black laws of pagandom, against false laws of heretics, against the craft of idolatry against spells of women and smiths and wizards, against every knowledge that corrupts man's body and soul. Christ, shield me today against poison, against burning, against drowning, against wounding, so that the reward may come to me in abundance. Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ in me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me, Christ on my right, Christ on my left, when I lie down, Christ when I lie down, Christ when I sit down, Christ in the heart of every man who thinks of me. Christ in the mouth of every man who speaks of me. Christ in the eye that sees me. Christ in the ear that hears me. I arise today through a mighty strength, the invocation of the Trinity, through a belief in the threeness, through a confession of the oneness of the creator of creation. Amen. Now there may be things as we were reading through that that you may disagree with, and that's fine. I think we're open to being able to challenge creeds, prayers, counsels of men. However, there were things that were of importance there that we are not at liberty to disagree with. For example, we arise today through the power of God. Perfectly, we're all in agreement there. You see, we need to focus on the things that we should be in agreement with. I summon today all the powers between me and evil. There's been a power given to us. It says in 2 Peter chapter 1 that everything has been given to us pertaining to life and godliness. So we are at liberty, we are admonished, we are almost obligated to summon the power of God, everything that has been given to us pertaining to life and godliness, to be with us, to keep us as away from evil. Christ is our shield. We could say the breastplate of St. Patrick, but prayerfully all that that made you think about was Christ being with you and Christ being your shield. And Christ being all around you, in you, behind you, with you when you sit, with you when you talk, going before you and being in the mouths and the ears and the eyes of the people that see you or hear you or speak about you. Again, the reason I I wanted us to focus in on that is that when we look at that prayer and we say, what is of importance about that prayer? Not focusing in on what are the laws of pagandom. Who cares? Don't worry about that part. Focus on what is important. And the reason I'm saying that in line with atonement is that when we're talking about Christ's atonement and what he has provided for his people, let us not go the way of worrying about theories and all the different understandings that have been offered up and instead cleave to the fact that Christ has brought atonement. Christ has provided propitiation. He's fulfilled that which the Jews needed to be atoned for and he has thrown that need for atonement out of the way to take the full use of the word propitiation, to throw off. He threw off the need. So again, to argue with a pastor from Farmingville about atonement is silly. But to be here at church and to offer up teachings and to say, I can be wrong. I can grow in my understanding of the atonement. I can listen to the wisdom of other believers in the assembly. That's something we should mark out. And that should be something that is of importance. I could care less about what the pastor from Farmingville says. But I'll tell you what, I I care about the assembly. And I care about when we seek to cleave to truth. And we desire to dig deeper and say, you know, What is of importance? What is it about Christ's atoning work, Christ's propitiating work that we should cleave to and we should make of importance? So let me bring all of this together this morning. 
I'd like to show you, the, or not show you, I'd like to bring your attention to the front of your bulletin. Well, surely it's not the church that's praying the prayer that's on the front of your bulletin, meaning the building. It's the church, the people, me and you, all of us here. Lord, send a revival and let it begin with me. You see, that's an interesting prayer in line with St. Patrick. Because wouldn't you say he was a man that said, Lord, set a revival in Ireland and send me. Let it begin with me. He was faithful. That's our example today. We get to look to an example of St. Patrick, a man that desired to bring reconciliation to the people that made him a slave, that were invaders, that brought him somewhere to a land he did not want to be. And he said, by the love and the mercy of God, I'm going to go back and I'm going to fix those people with the truth of God, by focusing on what matters. I doubt St. Patrick went there and argued about different theories of atonement. Thank God by 4th century, there probably weren't all that many offered up, yet at least. Another thing I think that as we talk about revival, and we want to see a change in our world, we want to see things change, I believe that happens when we admit our wrongs. Admitting our wrongs is seeing God go before us. The only way I believe that when I admit my wrongs, I'm stubborn. So when I admit my wrongs, trust me, it is God going before me. It's the divine shining through me. Something I know I wouldn't do in and of myself. In keeping with our thinking through scripture, we want to have God go before us. We want to have God with us. We want to have him within us. Therefore, we must worship him in spirit and in truth. We must examine our paradigms. We must be willing to say, I've been wrong. I'm going to be wrong again. But I want to be honest in the assembly of believers. Sometimes it's hard to be honest out there. So the least I could do is get up in the pulpit on a first day of the week and say, let me be honest with where I was wrong. It's not hard to be honest out there. It's hard to be honest when you're wrong out there because the world can be cruel. Therefore, I'm glad to admit an area I was wrong in regards to the atonement process, to affirm Christ's providing atonement through the order of Melchizedek not as a high priest under the Levitical order, not even typifying or typifying the, the, the way that the high priest would bring atonement, but rather as a great high priest under the pronunciation of God's Son, Jesus Christ offered atonement and a propitiating work which removed that need. We see honesty and conscience and conviction that comes from the example of St. Patrick. I can only hope this morning that I offered up a little glimmer of such wisdom for our edification, a small measure of that same honesty and conscience and conviction as St. Patrick. All glory to God. Let's pray. Mighty God, we do thank you, Lord. We thank you for going before us. We thank you for preparing our minds, Lord, for the times that we will be given a privilege to admit that we are wrong. As strange as that might sound, Lord, we thank you for your work in our lives. We thank you for the example of saints that have done the right thing as St. Patrick, Lord and saints that have done the right thing by admitting when they were wrong. Lord, thank you for the body of believers. Thank you for the truth that is found in your word and the spirit that illuminates your truth and gives us a diligence and a desire to search these things out. Lord, go before us as we prayed that prayer of St. Patrick. Allow that prayer to be our reality today, that you truly would be with us, before us, behind us, in us, beneath us, on our right and on our left, with us when we lie down, with us when we sit down, and in the mouth, the mind, the heart, the ear of every man, woman, and child who hears us. Allow us to continue to saturate our landlord with the gospel. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.